right, we are uh, continuing a sermon series uh, throughout the summer in the book of Psalms. We've titled this series Praying Through the Psalms uh, because it's what we believe the book of Psalms are given for us to do. Eugene Peterson uh, tells us that all of God's word is his voice to us. It's his word to us. And in the Psalms, we get a language to address back to God. Do we learn how to receive his word and how to talk back to God, how to answer him? We pray always uh, from the overlap of two worlds, a world where we experience joys and sorrows, victories and defeats. And the Psalms give us a language to bring this world before God uh, and before his reality. So this morning we will be reading Psalm 62. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The scripture reading for today is Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For him comes, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your refuge before him. God is our refuge for us, is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. You know, once again, we come to a psalm where we don't know the exact situation uh, that David was going through. We don't know what the crisis of the moment was that led him to write this psalm. But often that's the way the psalms work, uh, that they come out of a particular situation, one man in one place of time dealing with one particular set of hardships. But the psalm is left broad. Uh, It's left general enough that all of God's people, Uh, whether the ancient Israelites there in the temple or the Israelites in exile or us 2,000 years after Christ could pray these psalms not knowing the particulars but being able to identify uh, with the plight, with the situation of the psalmist. And David here gives us a metaphor that I think is beautifully poetic in that the the moment I read it, I thought, yes, (laughs) that is what it feels like. That's what it's like in my life right now. He says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? So the the word picture that David paints is of men with a battering ram going up against a stone wall over and over again. And he experiences his life as being like a wall It's just on the verge of tipping over completely. 
One more blow, and he's going to tumble. One more hard push, and he's going to collapse in a heap. You know, I've got to say, never before uh, in my pastoral ministry have I experienced a time where just in, in doing life with people and talking to each one of you, have I had as, as palpable of sense that this is where we all are right now, that this is what it feels like to be a citizen of our country right now, to be a citizen of this world right now, that most of us are just kind of in disbelief with the feeling of, you know, if one more thing happens, one more blow, and I'm just going to topple. If I have to see one more video of an African-American man losing his life on video, I don't think, I don't think I'm going to make it. If I have to deal with one more story of police shot just trying to do their jobs, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do as a country. I don't, I don't know how we're going to put it together. If I, have to, if I have to hear one more news headline, of a bomb exploding or a truck driving or a shooter shooting in the name of religion. I don't, I don't know what our world's going to do, and I don't know that I can take it. It feels palpably like all of us are collectively feeling like we're just right there. And that's to say nothing. This account of the, the situation says nothing of the personal crises of our lives the relational battles that we're in, the spiritual blows that we take, the financial hills that we climb. Collectively, I think we can identify with this feeling of being in crisis. A leaning wall, a tottering fence. And that's essentially the, the movement of this psalm, is David feeling himself as a tottering wall, looking for something solid, looking for something that he can cling to and know that it's, it's not going to be pushed over with the attacks of the world. It's the movement from a tottering fence to finding a solid rest in God. The metaphors that he uses for God here are fortress, rock, and refuge. Something that can't be moved, can't be knocked over by the crisis of his day or the crises of ours. You know, Martin Luther uh, was on a similar journey. That's the, the man, the great Protestant reformer, the man who wrote the song that we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress, in the year 1527, which was a brutal year in a very difficult life. Martin Luther had plenty of difficult years. He was hunted for most of his life by the authorities because of what he believed and because of the movement that he led. But in 1527, it was a particular difficult year. On April 22nd, while preaching a sermon, he had a dizzy spell and fainted. He was so worn out uh, from fighting these theological battles, both within the Reformation itself and beyond it, that in the pulpit on April 22nd, he grew dizzy and fainted. It grew into an illness such that on July 6th, uh, he thought himself on the verge of death. Coming out of this illness, he pins this, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. He was so afflicted that he was tempted to, to blaspheme, to, to walk away from God. 
But through the prayers of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. And then, as if this difficult year wasn't enough, in August, his hometown of Wittenberg contracted the plague. The plague came to his city. And while many fled, Luther and his wife Katie felt the call to stay and to turn their home into a hospital to care for those who are sick and dying of the plague while Katie was pregnant. He opened up his home to do this. And it was later in that very year, in 1527, that Luther wrote those words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. While my health fails, while my city falls apart, while the plague is at our door, God is a mighty fortress. He's a man like David who's gone through this journey from the tottering fence to a solid rock, a solid fortress in God. We need to go on this journey with them uh, to find in God a place of protection and of rest. You know, David acknowledges in Psalm 62 that though he's on the verge of of being knocked over, though he knows that his hope ultimately is, is in God, right? The psalm starts, the very first verses or my, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Oftentimes, the Psalms begin with an affirmation of faith. Here's what David knows to be true. He's a believer. He's able to confess faith in God. So it starts with what's true, and then it goes down uh, into the experience of crisis, the crisis of faith the difficulty of believing in the midst of suffering, the experience of being the tottering wall before it comes out on the other side, reassured of faith. And in that moment of doubt, David acknowledges that in the midst of crisis, our temptation is to look not to God, but, but horizontally to things in this world to be our source of comfort, to be our source of security. Right? Even people of faith, we experience life in this world. We experience our suffering on a horizontal plane. And so our temptation is to look horizontally, to look at other uh, creaturely or created ways to find comfort. David points uh, to the fact that, that most human beings, when confronted with our vulnerability, when confronted with crisis, our tendency is to look to two things. Money and power is our solution. We think that if I can accumulate enough wealth, which is really just another way of accumulating power, I can somehow insulate myself against the suffering of this world. Right? If I have enough wealth, I can move to a better neighborhood. And I won't be afflicted in the same way that I am living in my neighborhood. If I can build up enough of a bank account, enough of a, a stock portfolio, I'll be protected against the vacillations of the economy. If I can build up a nest egg for myself. I can get more through the lean times. Right? We, we look towards money and towards power. David says it here when he says, verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Right? Don't look to money or to power, whether it's financial power, political power, military power, to get you through the crises that you'll go through in life. You know, I saw a vivid illustration of this uh, the other day. Somebody brought my attention. There's a company called Vivos, V-I-V-O-S. 
You can go to their website, vivos.com. Vivos offers for the low, low price of $35,000 a person to give you and your family upscale luxury accommodations deep underground in the event of the apocalypse. Vivos has built a vast underground bunker that you and your loved ones, for $35,000, can go to in the event that things on this earth get so bad that you're in need of protection. Here are some quotes from their website. Our complexes comfortably accommodate community groups from 50 to 1,000 people. So if we get our deposit in, Christ Church in town, we can, we can get in in time. In spacious living quarters, outfitted and stocked for a minimum of one year of autonomous survival to ride out the potential events. Every detail has been considered and planned for. Members need only arrive before their facility is locked down and secured from the chaos above. So you just got to make sure you get there on time. You got to make sure there's enough time to get a flight and go. I think they're all in Europe. The chaos above, they enumerate for us. It's listed as nuclear war, biological war, terrorism, anarchy, electromagnetic pulse, solar flares, polar reversals, global tsunamis, supervolcanoes, and giant meteors. If any of those happen, their, their facilities are built to withstand it. I didn't know what a solar flare was or a polar reversal in it, but until I Googled it. Right now I've got this whole new realm of stuff to be scared of, <laughs> right? Stuff that might happen. Their website reminds us, millions will perish or worse yet struggle to survive, but they boldly promise Vivos is your solution to ride out these catastrophes so that you may survive to be a part of the next genesis. That's good news. And the sober reminder, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. So go now. Build now. $35,000. It can be yours. So the idea, you know, guys, they wouldn't have built this. They wouldn't be advertising it on the internet if there wasn't a market for it. Right? If they didn't think that there was a legitimate chance that they'd be able to sell these security measures. We are a people uh, that's easily marketed to on the basis of our fears. Right? You, this election, in many ways, is turning down to playing on our fears. Playing on our deep sense of insecurity. To see, every, with two candidates and more, if you count all the other elections going on, promising peace and security in the midst of a world of chaos. But what David knows in verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion, and the balances they go up, and they are together lighter than a breath. Why is it foolish uh, to look for security in this world, whether in a bunker or through a bank account or through our power? is because ultimately human existence in and of itself is a crisis, right? It is to be vulnerable, to be a human being. He says whether you're rich or you're poor, in the grand scheme of things, human existence is a breath. It's here today and then it's gone, right? What's the problem with investing $35,000 for a year of provisions deep underground? Well, you walk up one day to be a part of the new Genesis, <laughs> You walk up, you look around it, you're glad you're, you survived, and then what happens to you? Maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, you go back into the ground, this time not to come up again. 
right? You get up and you die. Maybe you get up from one meteor and then get hit by a car. Or maybe you live a long life and die of old age. But human life is a breath. It's a vapor. Whether our days we feel secure or whether we feel the vulnerability of our condition, all of human life is a vapor. And to look anywhere other than to God is illusory. And so, in light of all this cheery good news, where can we look in the midst of our vulnerability, in the midst of the crisis, both on a grand scale and on a personal scale? How can we practically find a refuge in the midst of our crises? Well, I believe the psalmist uh, would just show us three practical things. The first is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If all we ever look to is the news and our social media feed, you'll feel nothing but anxiety. You'll feel nothing but unrest. We have to train our eyes to look not just to the events on the surface of things, but to look to Christ. David, in the last verses of the, of, of the psalm, says this, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. You know, the Bible paints a a rich picture of what God is like. It tells us uh, so many of his attributes, so many, gives us so many different words to try to get at what the supreme creator of all things is like. Right? At best, they all point us uh, towards truth about himself. But these two things that the psalmist tells us here, if you want to know what God is like, If you want to know what he's like, you can certainly go beyond these two things. But he gives us two pillars. That if you know these two things about God, you can really know accurately what he's like. He says that he's powerful. That God is all-powerful. That there's nothing that is beyond his power, nothing he can't do. That he was powerful enough to create all things with his word. That he's powerful enough to govern the universe. That he's powerful enough to sustain us that he's powerful enough ultimately to call all men and women to account, right? So that God, on the one hand, is absolutely all-powerful. And then the second thing is that to him belongs steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed. We've talked about it some before. This is the bond that bonds God to his people, that God is a God of pledged and promised, covenanted love. Those two things if you put them together, are incredibly good news. Right? If, God is, if you know about God that he's all-powerful, that's not necessarily good news. Right? If you know yourself to be weak, if you know yourself to be sinful, if God is only an all-powerful, all-authoritative judge, then he can't be a refuge for you. Right? You have no confidence in knowing that if I go to him, I'll find rest or peace or acceptance. You might fear that if you go to him, you would experience only judgment by this all-powerful deity. But if you know that God is both all-powerful and that the the all-powerful one behind the universe, that his heart is bent towards you in love, that in the person of Jesus, that he's shown himself to be for you, to be on your side, to to be so for you that he was willing to give his life for yours, that God becomes a refuge for us. That God becomes a fortress. That God becomes a resting place. If you want to see vividly pictured what that God is like, 
Look to Jesus. Jesus reveals to us who God is and what he's like. And in Jesus, we see God's incredible power. Right? We see Jesus powerful enough to stand in a boat in the middle of a storm and say, peace, be still to the waters. And the storm quiets down and peace comes. That he's, he's powerful over the forces of nature. We see Jesus with a word to a man possessed by a legion of demons. Say, come out of him. And all of a sudden, this man, thought by his entire community to be wrecked beyond saving, the scriptures tell us, is restored and in his right mind and sitting at Jesus' feet. We see Jesus to be powerful over even the forces of death, raising a little boy in the midst of his funeral, raising a young daughter who lays on her deathbed, raising his friend Lazarus, ultimately himself, raising again, victorious over the powers of death. So we see power, raw, unbridled power in Jesus. But then we see absolute tender love. We see the leprous man who comes and falls at Jesus' feet. He knows Jesus' power. And he says, Jesus, I know that if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I'm willing. And he reaches out and he touches him and he heals him. We see Jesus' incredible tenderness towards us over and over showing us what God's power is and what his loving kindness are like. In the midst of the crisis of this world, in the midst of the crises that afflict us, we need to learn to look to Jesus. He's our hope. He's our rock. Practically, uh, this, you know, this is an act of faith. It requires us to look to him. But practically, one of the things I encourage you to do is to begin and end your day in, in his word, listening to Jesus, and in prayer, addressing Jesus. You know, it's one of the things that we've tried to do together as a church is to adopt a life where we read the scriptures together and we pray together morning and evening. We've got a booklet there at the table uh, that you can take home with you to, to do that along with our church. I was talking to, to a, a man who'd been coming to our church and trying to do this. This is a normal, everyday guy, not a monk, you know, not a mystical guy, but he'd begun trying to do this and to pray. And he told me, he said, you know what? I used to start every day. I'd read the paper, and I'd have some coffee, and then I'd go to work, and I'd, I'd feel anxiety. I'd feel, I'd feel worried. But now I pour the same cup of coffee, and I read the scriptures, and I pray before I read the paper. And my day goes off to a better start. And I thought, exactly. And there's no magic in the formula, right? There's no magic in, in doing it in the morning or sitting in the right spot or having coffee, although I, I recommend the coffee. But it's the act of looking to Jesus, to begin our day with our eyes set on our Savior, seeking his presence, his hope, his security in the midst of a world uh, that doesn't offer it. So we look to Christ first, and then we need to look to our own souls. There's, there's uh, two times in this psalm, I believe uh, there's three times in this psalm, where, the, where David, uh, the prayer, speaks of his own soul. Speaking to his soul, in verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. Later in verse 5, he says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. We need to be attentive to our inner life. You know, there's something about being in crisis that draws us towards talking, it draws us towards noise and action. 
right? It draws us to listen to the clamoring voices around us. We, we, we watch the news. We get on social media and we see a thousand different things coming at us. We, we all increasingly feel the need to put our own opinion out there into the world. It draws us to speak. It draws us to act, to figure out how to do something, how to solve something, right? And surely our faith, our Christian convictions do lead us to action in the midst of the crises of our day. But I think there's wisdom in what the psalmist tells us, which is before we rush to speak and before we rush to do, that we should pay attention to what's going on in our own souls, what's going on in our own hearts before God. Before we rush uh, to offer answers, we should be quick to pause and to think about the state of our own hearts, to think about our own culpability uh, in the crises that we're going through, our own prejudices, our own anger, our own fear, our own cynicism, the forces of our own soul that that arise when they're in the midst of this. Marilyn Robinson, uh, the author, uh, I quote her fairly regularly. Uh, She wrote a piece uh, in the New York Review of Books about a year ago. Uh, She entitled it Fear. And she had two main theses. I, I love this. Her two points, she says, first, contemporary America is full of fear. I think we can all objectively view that to be true. If it was true a year ago, it's probably more true today. Think of the events of the last year. Think about Orlando and Dallas and Baton Rouge. Think about Nice. Think about all that's happened in the last year. She says, first, contemporary America is full of fear. And second, Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fear is not a Christian habit of mind. What does that mean? Certainly fear is human, right? It's a human response to threat is to be afraid, right? A human response to violence is to, is to, to be afraid to gather those around you that you can protect. Fear is a natural first impulse in a world of threats. Anger is a first impulse in a world of violence. Anger towards the people who perpetrate violence. Anger at those who we feel to be at fault. So it's human. But she uses this this great phrase, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. I think her idea is, and it reflects a broader range of the Christian tradition, is that our lives, our souls are shaped by our habits. That there is a difference in our first response in our cultivated state of habitual state of mind, the state of our souls, right? It's it's right to be fearful, to be angry, maybe to be cynical, maybe to be doubting. But as a Christian, as we attend to our souls before God, we say we're we're not left simply to be a victim of our first impulse, we're not left to, to, to give voice to every momentary bit of anger that we feel. We're not called to be led out of the fear that we feel. But we're called to push beyond those first responses. And by faith, to still our souls before God and to seek to orient ourselves to him. And we look to Jesus by faith. We find ourselves moving beyond fear to hope, moving beyond anger to love, to cultivate Christian habits of mind. I love the phrase, and I think it's so needed for us uh, in our world. For God alone, O my soul, wait 
in silence. There is absolutely nothing in our culture that will help you do either one of these two things, wait or be silent. Our culture is addicted to speed. It's addicted to instantaneous gratification, giving immediate vent to every bit that we feel. There's nothing in our culture that will give you the resources to wait quietly, to be quiet before God, to listen to his voice and to the voice of our neighbors. There's nothing uh, that will help us to patiently listen to God and to wait for him to rearrange our hearts and to move us towards faith, hope, and love. So we look to God, we look to Christ, we look to our own souls, and then finally we look beyond ourselves to our neighbors. Right? It's easy to take this language of the psalmist about looking to God as a refuge and resting in him. It's easy to take that language and think that what he means is that in a world of crisis, what the people of God do is we run to God who's our refuge to get away from the world, to get away from those in need, to get away from the violence and the struggle of our world. That God is is a refuge who protects us from our neighbors. And honestly, a lot of the psalm would read that way, if not for verse 8. Look at what David says in verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. See what he does. He goes from God is my refuge. I was a tottering wall. I was about to be knocked over, but I found rest and peace and security in Christ and God. He goes beyond that and he says, trust God, O people. This isn't a private refuge. It's not a private trust. But our faith is always a public faith. It's always one that enables us to speak out to our neighbors and to say, join us. Find in God the refuge that we have found in him. Join us in the only refuge uh, that will do. Now, it it is incredibly difficult in a pluralistic world and in a secular world to speak in this way, right? We live in a world uh, that has basically put a lid over us, that we experience crisis in our, human, in, in our horizontal relationships within the human family, between people groups, between races, between nations. And the world has basically said to us, the only acceptable plane for you to think about answers to these problems is horizontal, right? Don't tell us, don't look to heaven for answers. Don't you know that religion is one of the things that got us into this mess? Don't offer uh, transcendent hope, look only to horizontal solutions. And so to speak of God as a refuge, to speak of God uh, is the one who's not only a refuge for those who happen to be Christian, but as a refuge that opens himself, that opens his arms to all people, requires an incredible amount of courage. And yet, uh, what we find is that in moments of crisis, in moments uh, where we and our neighbors, regardless of faith commitment, are all stumbling around for answers. We're all trying to figure out how we move through this and how we live together. The world is more open than ever to hearing hope than to seeing in action love demonstrated. Just this past week, there was a story on NPR 
I listen to a lot of NPR. And I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I have heard stories on NPR where the church was portrayed in an only positive light, where the church was, was portrayed as, as a source of healing and hope, not as a group of closed-minded, uh, narrow-minded bigots. And yet, there was a story on NPR uh, that looked specifically at the churches of Minnesota, of Baton Rouge, and of Dallas in the wake of these shootings. The ways that the churches and the pastors in these communities opened up their churches' doors, ceasing to be churches that cared only for their people, but became churches that cared for their whole neighborhoods, cared for their whole city. It featured these quotes from pastors. One Minnesota pastor said this, it's time to start looking at our souls, not only the individual soul, but the soul of our country and our congregation. You know, we are not well at this time. Another pastor in Minneapolis, we felt it was really important to do something for the whole community. It was not about healing so much as simply naming the wounds and acknowledging the brokenness of our community. Pastor in Dallas, uh, a man named Brian Carter, said, Fear can be incredibly crippling, but as people of faith, as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that when our fear tries to take hold of us, we must look to our faith. These men, these men and women were quoted on NPR, uh, sent to a national audience, as an example of the church opening her doors to be a refuge for her community. You know, the, the movement of the gospel is this, that what Christ is for us, we become for the world. What Christ is for his church, the church is for the world. Christ is our refuge. In him, we have found shelter, we have found security, we have found rest. Therefore, the church is called to be a refuge to the world, a place where our neighbors can find security, can find peace, can find rest, can find reconciliation in a world of division. Not only the church when we're gathered, but also each of us when we're sent out into our neighborhoods, into our place of work, and our place of business, to our schools, into our community events, that we would be a people who offer a listening ear, who offer a helping hand, who offer hope, who offer the embrace of Christ, the refuge of God in a world of crisis. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to experience the rest that we can only know when our souls uh, find their refuge in you. Lord, we're reminded of Paul's words in Colossians where he says that we are dead. Uh, that the lives, uh, that our lives are now hidden with God in Christ that we've been crucified with him and that our very lives, our very selves are hidden safely in God. Lord, help us to rest in you, to know that in spite of the rising and the falling of political powers, in spite of the violence and hatred and prejudice of our world, that in you we can find rest. And Lord, in you we can be a people that extend your rest and your safety and your security, your shelter and kindness to our neighbors and to our city. Lord, we pray that you would help this church
to be a refuge in our place and time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.